Welcome to the Threat Assessment 2022 podcast series. I'm your co-host, Michael Frank, from Economist Impact's Policy and Insights Practice. And I'm Yu Wenxiong. Welcome to Episode 2, Culture and Digital Finance. So before we get started, let's recap quickly our first episode. So Yuan and I talked with Usman Ahmed, who's the head of global public policy at PayPal, and Cecilia Chu, who's the co-founder and CEO of Utrip. Yuan, I wanted to ask you, what did you find most interesting about those conversations? Sure. What I found most interesting to me is that they both mentioned seeing more collaboration than competition. Usman even created a word called cooperation. So we see companies compete on one side, but collaborate on the other. I guess that's because the market is big and consumers are always demanding. So collaboration allows companies to leverage the best of one another's assets and technology. That's totally different from what we thought before. Yeah, I agree. On the one hand, it's surprising, but with hindsight, it does seem obvious. So this week, we're going to turn to culture, especially what companies are doing to adapt their culture to respond to these changing market dynamics. Right. In our research, we actually found this tension between hiring new staff and retaining or upscaling existing staff to improve technology innovation. And there is always a question about what consumers want and are capable of. Yes, exactly right. So if you're interested in learning more, please head to impacts.economist.com and you can find Threat Assessment 2022, Digital Competition and Global Finance available to download for free. So today's episode, uh, we're going to talk with two experts who know a lot about the cultural change regarding digital transformation throughout their organizations and within the broader finance industry. So we spoke with two leaders at traditional banks that are deploying technology at a global scale. First up, we have Jimmy Ung of DBS, where he is Group Chief Information Officer, as well as Head of Group Technology and Operations. So here's UN and I with Jimmy Ung. Thank you for your time today, Jimmy. Really appreciate you coming on the show. One of the things that we found in our research is this view that to embrace cultural change regarding digital transformation, all employees in the organization have to be brought along the digital transformation journey. In your view, is that true? The term digital transformation, I think the most important operative word is not digital, it's actually transformation. And what it means is that everybody in the organization needs to be brought along the whole entire transformation process. I think this is paramount for any transmission to uh, be successful. We have adopted in DBS the approach that rather than having a small team of people doing this transformational work, that we wanted to mobilize everyone in the bank to be aware of what digital transformation means to them. I think the first part of it is really about making banking joyful. And to be the bank of choice is really about getting customers to choose us. I think what we needed to do was to actually get everybody in the bank to understand and to respond in a very coherent and concerted manner. And to do that, we have a very simple acronym that we practice you know, in the bank. That's make it easy for everyone to understand. And that's really encapsulated in the whole entire acronym called RED, R-E-D. Being respectful, easy to deal with, as well as independent. 
We make it easy so that everybody within the bank can operationalize it without really getting behind the mechanism of what it means, the whole entire understanding that you need to actually have a digital strategy before being able to embark on it. Now, right from the people in the teller, in the branches, even to people in HR or legal and audit and all the other aspects of the bank, the supporting functions, it's very easy for them to relate to. And with that in mind, we actually started this whole entire journey thinking, how a customer will experience DBS service digitally. On top of that, at the back end, from the technology perspective, we also needed to do some work around how we actually restack and actually modernize our infrastructure. What we did was we came up with an acronym called Gandalf. As you may have guessed, we actually got the inspiration and motivation from Law of the Rings. And if you look at the acronym Gandalf, you know, G-A-N-D-A-L-F, G stands for Google, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And of course, the missing D stood for DBS. Beneath the fun expression lay a very serious ambition for us to be able to operate and make ourselves like a technology company rather than a traditional bank. I love the Gandalf acronym, and I think it's fair to say that DBS is doing this very well. If I go into a DBS bank and I ask the teller what Gandalf means, is this an acronym that everyone throughout the organization would understand, or is it more about communicating the general principles as a means of inspiring that ambition within the organization? Michael, I mentioned earlier on uh, when I talk about Braid, that is the service ethos that we sort of actually put it out to the entire bank. Braid is something that everybody in the bank understood. Now, Gandalf is uh, basically something that we actually crafted for the purpose of technology uh, people. Because for us to become digitally savvy, the idea is that you must be able to actually take the tools and be able to enable the customer journey. For us to actually do that, we need to actually do a few things. One is to really modernize our whole entire technology stack. Two, to be able to organize ourselves for success. And three, to be able to be agile. Four, to actually think about the way that we roll out services as a product rather than a big, huge project. So if you were to go to somebody and tell them about rate, they do understand and what that means to them. Gandalf is actually one level down in the organization. So if you can see, what we have done is that we actually take certain concepts and actually apply it to different parts of the bank to make it easy for people to understand. A lot of this comes down to having these technological ambitions, but at the end of the day, keeping the customer in mind, delivering a really great product, and letting that dictate how you use the technology rather than the other way around. Do you think the business has responded really well to that, that they take pride in red when they're doing their jobs? So one of the things that we did, Michael, was to structure for success, was to actually implement what we call the two-in-the-box organization structure. We call it the horizontal organization. What that really means is that, you know, the business and the technology folks do have a joint KPI. They actually own the same budget, both for operate as well as for build. They own the uh, technology assets. And they co-own the whole entire customer journey. So in many ways, the business has responded very well in a very agile manner as well to co-own and to actually have joint KPIs, to actually deliver best-in-class journey for our customers. 
And it's because of that that you know we are able to actually deliver some of these wonderful journeys and what you actually see in our apps. Because of the joint KPI and the joint ownership nature of the whole entire structure. It seems like customers can be a driver of this as well. Particularly in Asia, there are a lot of consumers that are very digitally savvy. And in many cases, uh, they're much more digitally native even than other regions. Where do you see consumer culture maybe helping to encourage DBS or other institutions to take on more advanced technological change? We always kept honest by our customers. As I mentioned, while we actually do focus on our competitors, ultimately at the end of the day, as an infinite company, our main role and job and responsibility is to the customers. And what we want to do is really getting delightful journeys and, and service to our customers. And I think if we do that well, I think clearly that is going to keep us in the game. You now we are being customer obsessed, so to speak, within the bank. And we keep asking ourselves, by doing certain things, are we doing right by our customers? Is that uh, something that the customer will appreciate? And we actually keep tabs of that quite religiously. So in many ways, customers do keep us honest in how we actually service them. Is that pretty common across all of those different segments? Or are there any instances that stand out as being kind of exceptional? Either you have customers that are really savvy or in other areas, maybe where they're lagging a little bit further behind and need a bit of a pull from the bank to embrace change. I think in Asia, the customers are pretty savvy and pretty demanding as well. So I think we are constantly upgrading our services and listen to the customer's voice in terms of what we ought to perform and how we ought to perform. So I think that this is actually quite uniform across the geographies, across the business that we do. At the end of the day, customers want a very seamless, easy, convenient, and dependable and trusted service. And what we're here to do is to enable that. You know, we have a tagline within DBS as well. It's to actually make our banking invisible. I'm sure you heard about our live more bank less. The ability for us to be embedded within the life of the customer and make banking seamless and make banking invisible. That's the task that we like to actually perform. And to make sure that customers continue to bank with us perform banking without even them knowing and without even them realizing that they are performing a, a banking transactions. And in my mind, this is quite universal. Nobody wakes up in the middle of the day to say, look, I want to actually do some banking services. They only do it as a result of incidental to their daily activities, whether it's been payments or looking for property and so forth. So people actually do their daily activities and banking activities are really incidental to their daily activities. And the ability for us to be embedded within their daily activities is really what we want to achieve. And I believe that that's pretty universal across all the countries as well as their segments. Makes a lot of sense. Moving to the future is essentially this the strategy, first of all, around a future-proof workforce. There's been a lot of discussion over the last decade or so about getting in more engineers and more digital talent into organizations. What do you think is the right balance here between you know, skilling up people who are already in the, in the organization and then also looking to 
maybe expand capabilities over the long term through new hires or looking to replace people in different business segments? If I have the capacity to learn, in my experience, given the right motivation and the right circumstances that they are in, I think people are more than happy to actually pick up new skills. If they actually see if all these training are delivered in bite size, easily digestible, sometimes that you can apply immediately. Uh, you don't need to be a programmer or a data scientist to be able to do that. You know, the tools today are actually quite easy for you to assemble and pull together a, a workflow and enable them, the customer, to actually think about experimenting how that workflow uh, will look like by doing a very simple AWS deep racer training. We have managed to actually equip 3,000 over employees to understand what AIML is all about in a very fun way and to be able to incorporate as part and parcel of their work. Once you actually make training and some of this upskilling easy and fun, people will actually come on board. When I actually train my guys to actually do programming in operations, I thought they were just learning another language and there's always a structure around it. So if you actually start thinking about what programming is all about, it's just learning another language. It's no different from, you know, learning French or Mandarin or uh, Italian. And I think when people actually sort of like get that over the harm and actually understand that, uh, people come to the training with an open mind. WSO2 helps you innovate faster with our platform for API management, integration, and customer identity and access management. Leading enterprises across finance, healthcare, retail, and other industries rely on WSO2 for mission-critical applications, exposing more than 500,000 APIs, managing over 500 million identities, and executing over 18 trillion transactions annually. Visit WSO2.com for more. It was interesting to hear Jimmy talk about what DBS has been doing to embrace digital transformation, especially that ambitious acronym Gandalf. All the things he mentioned sounds quite helpful, even for non-technical employees to adapt to digital transformation. I'd also love to participate in all the trainings and campaigns he mentioned and to just learn language to better talk to the computer. I wish we could have that too. You are right. We should definitely borrow that from DBS at Economist Impact. But before we do that, let's hear from another institution on what's going on in the digital transformation in the banking space. So here we are with James Lloyd, who is Managing Director at City and the APAC head of Spring by City, which is their digital consumer payment solution for corporate and institutional clients. Here we are, James Lloyd. So what areas of focus or innovation are you seeing in financial technology right now? Well, I guess oftentimes when people think about kind of fintech and, and financial services innovation, they often think about consumer-facing activities. Having spent time on that side, I'm perhaps more inclined towards corporate side, what innovation is happening in, in financial services for corporates, and then in particular, what's happening as regards the underlying infrastructure. So the answer, probably first and foremost, it's the innovation in clearing networks, is especially around things like instant payments. So this is a pretty seismic shift in how money is moved. And I think it's a pretty significant underlying innovation. We're seeing usage in that space grow pretty significantly, both for consumers and corporates. So that's certainly one area. I guess this feeds into our general outlook that 
in the near term future, we believe payments are going to be real time, 24 seven, frictionless, ubiquitous, global, everything I mentioned. So then you start to think about, well, what else could facilitate that? Which I guess would be a second area is the potential for digital assets and related technologies as it pertains to that future. We certainly believe in the potential of distributed ledger technology, digital assets and others, you know, as it pertains to efficiency or instant processing, a lot of talk about fractionalization, programmability, transparency, et cetera, et cetera. For that, it's a potential part of that instant global ubiquitous payments future. Maybe if I can cover off a third one, I think a pretty interesting area right now is around banking as a service. The banking as a service, we kind of think about as a model under which licensed banks like ourselves or others are integrating digital offerings directly into the products or services of typically of non-banks. You know, non-banks are able to then offer their customers digital banking services without the need to bank license of their own. So this is a pretty fundamental and, and important shift in how we see the delivery of financial services. But again, for us in the treasury and trade solution side, we have a pretty significant role to play when it comes to offering these banking as a service solutions to the likes of e-commerce marketplaces, payment intermediaries, fintechs, corporates, and indeed other banks. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the question, to go back to your point around this seismic shift and how money has moved in the payment space, you mentioned it's happening for both consumers and corporates. What are the cultural challenges like for those two groups? Particularly, we're sitting in Asia for our roles, and it feels oftentimes like the consumer in Asia is very digitally savvy and oftentimes leading the companies that they're buying products from or banks in terms of their capabilities and what they want out of digital services. Do you see that same approach for corporates? Or in some ways, it feels like it's the opposite challenge where the financial institutions are trying to get them onto newer systems. It's an interesting one. I, I think we could come at this from a couple of angles because you mentioned in Asia, and I, you know, I've been out here for, for 10 years, I agree that on the consumer side, there's just been a tremendous, almost leapfrog, as we know, in certain markets from kind of an old school way of working to digital first, mobile first, digitization across the board. And I think that is true in certain segments in certain markets. But equally, in Southeast Asia, in parts of India and elsewhere, there's still a tremendous amount to go from a consumer digitalization perspective. And that's true everywhere, but it is especially true in parts of Asia where perhaps the infrastructure doesn't yet exist. So I'm not sure it's a like for like insofar as the customer experience, if you're in the U.S. or in Western Europe, is still a very different customer experience to the customer experiences in Asia where they can differ markedly between markets and even within markets. So I guess that's the first point I'm making is that there's no real Asia digital payments. There are a variety of flavors, if I can put it like that. Now, to your broader point, I think it's a good question. I think the impact that fintechs or, or, and non-bank players have had is very significant in the consumer space. But in fact, that impact has been relatively minimal on the corporate side to date. And I think this goes to the heart of your question, which is consumer expectations have changed. And therefore, whether you're a bank or a non-bank or frankly, any other service provider, you need to significantly up your game. But now corporates, as you would expect, there's been a little bit of a time lag perhaps, but their expectations are converging. Their expectations are increasingly for that same level of customer service, of interface, of onboarding efficiency from a digital perspective, servicing, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it, there's a lag, but there's also a pretty significant convergence. And to your point, I think it's happening in Asia, perhaps at an even greater speed than elsewhere. 
That's interesting. Well, and, and thinking about the next step, given those experiences with moving clients to instant payments, do you think that distributed ledger technology, if you start running these systems more on the blockchain, is there going to be another level of education required or insurance or peace of mind that you'll have to provide for your clients to get them to accept what seems to be a pretty transformative step in the underlying technology? I think for us, it can't be a technology first solution, right? It is about what are we trying to solve for? And we're pretty heavily involved, again, given our global scope with uh, governments, regulators, and, and, and clients as regards the potential for CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, which, as you know, have both a kind of a retail and a wholesale form. So potential there. But I, I would say we are not anchored to specific technology solutions. I think it's going to be a combination of, of a variety of factors. We have a common shared future in terms of where we believe payments are going. If we're going to have these different instant payments networks in different markets, and maybe if we're going to have just different distributed ledgers, and even maybe different central bank issued digital currencies, then the question is around interoperability, which is both a technology interoperability and, and a kind of a process one, we think is going to be you know, a very significant area of focus over the coming years. That's interesting. I want to come back to something you said at the top, which is the interest going beyond payments, looking at banking as a service. In our research, that for a few years, there was this threat that these non-banks, and in particular non-financial institutions in the consumer internet industry, that they were going to try to move into this space. But it seems like these licensed institutions actually have this huge cultural advantage of essentially being public institutions. Certainly, City is a globally important institution. Do you think that that is part of the reason why there's maybe a little bit more optimism around the competition in the digital finance space more recently? I think, again, there's competition and there's collaboration and it's often with the same folks. And that's okay, right? I mean, I think we're very comfortable in that space. It's a complex ecosystem of providers and players. We talk about fintechs as a extremely important uh, customer segment for us. I think today, for example, within City TTS, we're working with around about 200 of the largest fintechs globally. And we can be supporting them in different ways. But equally, I'm sure there's also areas where we're competing with them. And I think that's beneficial, right? It's beneficial for the end customer, uh, be it a corporate or, or ultimately, you know, a consumer. Uh, but it's also beneficial for us to some degree. Both sides of the equation are learning to mirror other aspects of the other side, right? And I think as a consequence, we're likely to see more and more of these strategic partnerships, especially as fintechs or their clients seek to go global. So I think it's a question of where is your right to play? Where is your right to win? And, you know, that's an ever-evolving question, right, for everybody in this space. Well, given that context, what's the way that the banks are thinking about talent? How are banks thinking about talent with respect to competition? Look, this is a great question. And I would say, personally, I think this is kind of at the heart of the matter. I think talent is the defining characteristic, not just for banks, for non-banks, for fintechs, for everybody. And unless you're in a position both to attract and retain talent, then you're always going to struggle. And, you know, it is an ongoing, it is an evolving challenge. Within TTS, we have been probably spent the last year at least kind of adding a number of senior leaders. The focus has been on promoting 
folks within the bank, but also bringing in outside talent with diverse backgrounds and, and kind of complementary skills and really kind of building up that capability. And even within my own remit, I should say, look, I myself come from outside banking. I've spent a number of years in advisory before that, um, co-founded a, a fintech before that, early stage, growth stage, kind of payments and e-commerce. I've been hiring folks from, of course, within the bank, other banks, but equally, you know, from fintechs, from card networks, from e-commerce players, but also from outside of financial services. So what are we really optimizing for? I think we're optimizing for, yes, knowledge and experience, but a lot of that can be taught. I think at this stage, we're optimizing in terms of where we're looking for talent from different backgrounds, from different lived experiences. But then equally, are we providing them the exposure, the opportunity that they might find at a earlier or growth stage fintech? I think it's an ongoing challenge, don't get me wrong. But I do think the banks, uh, particularly those who can offer kind of global exposure, are seeking to learn from some of the early stage or, or growth stage guys. And equally, perhaps, particularly as we see a little bit of a market correction in the fintech or, or kind of wider uh, tech startup space, I think we're seeing maybe some of those guys learn from the potential, the opportunity, but also the kind of stability associated with some of these larger organizations as well. So again, the talent is the number one input that we need to solve for. And I would say we're trying to solve for it day in, day out. And it's going to be a never ending process. We're going to have to continue to refine and improve ourselves when it comes to, you know, not just sourcing, but but also retention. This could be an interesting time to see if a lot of that talent that had fled banking or even more traditional paths in general for the startup world, given a turmoil in the markets, if they start knocking on your door looking to <laughs> to come back. Well, I think we're seeing that already. That's the beauty of this space is that you get a lot of really excellent experience on the startup side, but you don't maybe necessarily have the same kind of global reach. You may not necessarily have the same breadth of knowledge and experience. So we're very, very eager to work with those folks, absorb that some of that knowledge and, and equally reciprocate. So I think it's an interesting time in the market. Many of these are clients of ours. Many of them are partners. So I think it is going to be an ongoing cosmic ballet <laughs> between fintechs and established players. And at least for us as a global transaction bank, as I said at the top, it's as much about the underlying infrastructure as it is about the kind of latest kind of consumer facing fintech innovation. Gandalf Cosmic Ballet. I think we've got some great narrative innovations in addition to the advances on the tech side of things. Don't you agree, Yuan? Yes, but one interesting common theme speaking with both Jimmy and James, and also Cecilia True in the last episode, is using technology to solve business problems rather than having technology-first solutions. Yeah, it seems really basic, and yet it's so fundamental. You don't just throw technology at the market and expect to be rewarded. It should be a means to an end. Okay, so Yuan, what's our theme next time? Who owns customer data? It's a big issue in this space. Exactly. It touches on competition, culture, regulation, and there doesn't seem to be a right answer. But we do have some great guests joining to try to help us focus our thinking at least. Join us next month as UN and I continue the threat assessment series with a deep dive on policy and regulation related to data. Many thanks to Jimmy Ung and James Lloyd for their time and insights. And thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.